Amen. And what a morning it has already been to sing praises to our great God and Savior. Thank you so much to our instrumentalists and vocalists for leading us this morning. If you have a Bible, please open to John chapter 17. John 17, a chapter which Martin Luther called the Holy of Holies of the New Testament. There are several key transition points to make note of in the Gospel of John. And as we come to John 17, we come to one of those transition moments. Last week, Pastor Stephen led us up through the end of John chapter 16, where Jesus ends that chapter making this wonderful and encouraging statement to his disciples in verse 33, where he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this statement here at the end of John 16 represents yet another significant turning point in this gospel. Remember that back at the close of John chapter 12, that marked the end of Jesus's public teaching ministry. After John chapter 12, Jesus was done publicly debating with the religious leaders and authorities. Jesus was done showing the crowds, signs and wonders and miracles and teaching them in parables. Jesus' publicly uh, public ministry essentially comes to an end with the close of chapter 12. And then, as we've seen over the last few weeks and months in chapters 13 to 16, Jesus focuses on teaching and instructing and encouraging his men, his disciples. We've seen that Jesus has encouraged them. He has taught them. He has shown them what true love is and means as he has washed their feet in chapter 13. Jesus has told them much about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of this helper, this spirit of truth that would indwell them and would empower them and enable them to fulfill the mission that Christ would give to them. Jesus has taught his men and us about the importance and the necessity of abiding in him, that our joy may be full, that we may go out and bear fruit to the glory of God. And yet now with the close of chapter 16, Jesus transitions from speaking to his disciples to speaking to his father in heaven. What's recorded in John 17 here before us has rightly been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is the longest prayer of Jesus that we have recorded in Scripture. We know that Jesus prayed. We are often told of how he would withdraw from the crowds to pray, but we are not often given insight to hear and to know exactly what Jesus prayed for. But here in John 17, we get to listen in on the prayer of our Lord and Savior. We get to behold and to hear God. God speaking to God. We get to listen in on this inter-Trinitarian conversation, if we can say it that way. So please look with me now at John 17. We will take the time this morning to read the entire chapter, the entire prayer. And as we read, please look for certain things. Look for repeated words. Look for recurring themes, truths, and ideas that Jesus comes back to again and again. And as we read, brothers and sisters, hear the heart, hear the desire of our Lord and Savior as he prays for himself, as he prays for his glory, as he prays for his immediate disciples, and as he prays for us, as he prays for anyone and everyone who would ever believe in him. John chapter 17 verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now... I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So reads the words of the living God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we we pause now to ask for your help. Father, we long to see the completion, the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. We rejoice to know that even now, seated at your right hand, the Lord Jesus Christ continues to pray for us continues to intercede on our behalf. And so, please, Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds to be attentive to your truth, to receive and to learn from what Jesus prays here. Sanctify us according to the truth. 
make us more like Christ as a result of having studied this prayer this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' good and precious name. Amen. As I'm sure you noticed, there are several key words and themes and ideas that are repeated throughout this prayer of Christ. Jesus prays much regarding eternal life, regarding His glory, regarding the Father's glory, God's sovereign eternal love, the unity of His people, the church's ongoing mission and purpose, and ultimately the the end of all things. And so as we look this prayer over the next couple of weeks, there will be an overlap of many of these themes and ideas. If you're looking for a a simple way to get your hands around this prayer, to understand conceptually the basic outline of this prayer, you could think of it like this. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself and for his glory. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his immediate disciples. Then in verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for anyone, for everyone who would ever believe in him through the message preached by the apostles. So in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. Verses 20 to 26, Jesus prays for all believers of all time. Look with me again at verse 1. Verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said... Stop right there for just a moment. Now, Jesus didn't say stop right there for just a moment, but stop in your reading right there for just a moment. We need to consider first and foremost on your outline, A, the posture of Jesus's prayer. Then we'll consider the particulars of Jesus's prayer. But first, the posture. Jesus here is no longer speaking to his men. But now as they are walking, as they are traveling to the Garden of Gethsemane, at some point, Jesus pauses, Jesus stops and And he lifts up his eyes to heaven and he begins to pray. He begins to speak to the Father in the hearing of his disciples. Now, why does this matter? Why is it important that we note and remember the posture of Jesus' prayer? Well, firstly, this little detail reminds us that John, the Apostle John, was an eyewitness of these things. That John saw this. He records these kind of minute details as to Jesus' posture as he lifts up his eyes as he begins to pray to the Father. He recalls these kinds of specific details. Secondly, it is relevant to see that as Jesus prays, he sets his eyes firmly up towards heaven. He prays with no shame, with no reservation, with no hindrance, with no sense of guilt. No, Jesus prays boldly and passionately before the Father as He sets His eyes on heaven, knowing that He will soon return to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And in this way, Jesus stands in contrast to another man that Jesus talked about one time. When Jesus was teaching, he told a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. A tax collector who had a sense of his own guilt and shame before God. And Jesus said of this tax collector that he was standing far off, that he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You say, what's the point? Here's the point. As Jesus prays, he has every right to look directly into heaven and to bring his request and his prayer before the Father. Jesus is the pure, perfect, righteous Son who in all ways, who in every way is fully pleasing to the Father. And brothers and sisters, as we sit here this morning as followers of Christ, it is a joyful thing to know that in Christ we can pray with similar confidence. In Christ, we can also come boldly to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Remember, brothers and sisters, that as we pray, we do not pray in our own name. 
We do not come to the Father in our own goodness, in our own purity, but we come in the name of Jesus Christ. We come clothed in His righteousness, in His perfection, and we are told to pray like Him. To come in His name, bringing our requests before the Father. One of my hopes and prayers coming out of this study of John 17 is that we will be greater motivated, like never before, to pray and to pray for the kinds of things that Jesus prays for here. So as Jesus prays, He looks up to heaven. He speaks to the Father as the perfect, pure, righteous Son of God who is our High Priest. And as such, you can be sure that what Jesus prays for is good. What Jesus prays for is right and it is pleasing before the Father. So that is the posture of Jesus' prayer. B on your outline, let's consider some of the particulars of Jesus' prayer. As we said, Jesus prays as the Messiah. He prays as the Holy One, as our great High Priest. But what exactly does He pray for? Firstly, note this on your outline, Jesus prays eagerly anticipating the Father's will to be accomplished. Accomplished. Jesus prays anticipating eagerly that the Father's will will be accomplished. Verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour has come. What hour exactly? does Jesus have in mind? What is so special about these next 60 minutes? Well, it's important to remember that Jesus is not here referring to just 60 minutes or 3,600 seconds. No, the hour refers to the purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus came for this purpose, for this hour, for this upcoming event when He would offer up His life as the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus lived His entire earthly life with a focused determination, with a preoccupation with the Father's will and with the Father's plan. Remember that even as a young boy, When Jesus was separated from his parents as they had been in Jerusalem and Mary and Joseph had recognized that they were without Jesus and they went back searching for Jesus and they found him in the temple speaking with the, with the, with the scribes and with the learned religious leaders. And when they spoke to him, do you remember Jesus' answer to them? He said, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Perhaps your translation says, I must be about my father's business. From a very early age, Jesus was preoccupied with doing the will of the Father. Remember back in John chapter 2, when Jesus was attending a wedding at Cana of Galilee, Mary brought him news that they had run out of wine. And, and Mary brought this to him. And do you remember Jesus' response to her? Jesus said to her, Mary, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Here, Jesus is telling Mary, and Jesus was telling Mary and Joseph back in Luke chapter 2, He was saying to them, you need to understand something. That in every way, And in everything, I am preoccupied with my Father's will. I am doing His business. I am on His mission. And so you never need worry about where I am or what I'm doing because I'm always about my Father's will in everything. I am moving towards that appointed hour for which I came. Jesus must fulfill the Father's plan of redemption and offer up His life. And so Jesus would even say back to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. 
Brothers and sisters, this statement here, beginning this prayer in John 17, it is huge. It is absolutely monumental because Jesus is saying that his very purpose for coming to earth is about to be realized. It is not an exaggeration to say that everything in human history had been leading up to this moment, to this hour for which Jesus came. Even all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, we see that this hour was heavy on the heart and mind of God. After Adam and Eve had sinned, God spoke of this hour. God spoke of this time when Christ would triumph over sin and Satan. In Genesis 3.15, God would say to the serpent, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of human history had been leading to this moment, to this hour, so we can understand why Jesus prays eagerly anticipating the Father's will and plan to be accomplished. And this should not surprise us. Jesus taught his own disciples to pray this way. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught them to pray, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, yes, Jesus prays for the Father's will to be accomplished. Jesus prays anticipating this very hour, this event for which he has come. This brings us to number two on your outline. Jesus prays eagerly anticipating glory. Jesus prays eagerly anticipating glory. Jesus knew the cross was coming. Jesus knew this hour had arrived and he knew about the glory to come. He anticipated that glory. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, speaking of Christ, says that for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God here in John. John 17, Jesus is anticipating glory. This is that joy that was set before him that he looked forward to. When an athlete runs a 26-mile marathon, there is pain. There is great pain. I have heard that mile 23 is the hardest. That mile 23 out of 26 is is the most now I would not know from personal experience I have no knowledge of such things but those who do say that mile 23 is the most difficult but if you ever watched a marathon if you have seen those people's faces as they cross the finish line it is evident that there is pain that there is agony that there has been great travail as they have persevered mile after mile after mile after mile there is pain but as they cross the finish line there is also joy and there is glory and there is delight as well there is the joy of completing and finishing a a monumental task there is the joy perhaps of receiving a a trophy or, or a medal, or prize money. There is the joy of telling your family and friends and sharing in your achievement with them and plastering it all over social media of what you have accomplished. There is great pain. There is agony. But there is joy. There is the expectation and the looking forward to of completing this event. And as Jesus is working through in his own heart, heart and mind and soul what is about to come he sees the pain and he also sees the glory he sees the joy that is set before him and listen brothers and sisters in a very real sense we must do the same thing as we run our race 
as we live out our faith in this very broken world. Again, I, I, I uh, recall you back to how John 16 ended in verse 33 where Jesus said, In the world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So, yes, there is tribulation. Yes, there is pain. But there is also the promise of victory and glory and joy in Christ. And the Apostle Paul is a good example for us, just as Christ is. Christ is the perfect example. Paul was a faithful example. And he lived and he thought this way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he would say, We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So may we, like Christ, may we, like Paul, see through, see beyond the present difficulties and trials and circumstances of this life and behold and see by faith the glory that is to come, that is to be found in Christ. And yet, As we think about this, as we think about Jesus' prayer and when we think about Jesus' request, this raises yet another question for us. What exactly does Jesus have in mind as he thinks about and prays about his coming glory? Well, a few things we should note. First, mark this on your outline. Jesus prays regarding his own glory and the glory of the Father. Jesus prays regarding his own glory and the glory of the Father. Jesus prays in verse 1, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus is passionate that he be glorified so that the Father would be glorified. We see throughout Scripture that the Son delights to glorify the Father. We see that the Father rejoices to glorify His Son. We see that the Spirit works to magnify and to highlight the glory and the magnificence of the Son. We see within the Trinity that there is a fervent love, that there is a mutual desire that the entire Godhead be glorified and and be praised. And yet we still ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be glorified? What exactly is Jesus asking for? And and perhaps a follow-up question to that is this, did the Father grant Jesus' prayer? Did the Father grant Jesus' prayer and indeed glorify His Son? Interestingly enough, Jesus' prayer, there's a few things we should say about it. When Jesus prays, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, it is in the imperative. It is in the imperative. It is stronger than just a simple request. It is more like a command, which at first could make us feel very uncomfortable until we remember who is doing the speaking. That it is Jesus, the pure, perfect, righteous Son of God, who is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. And as the perfect, righteous Son, Jesus makes this bold request to the Father that He be glorified. But here's the point. Jesus is worthy to make it. Jesus is worthy to make such a request that he be glorified, that he may then in turn glorify the Father. Another thing we need to remember is that Christ, by virtue of who he is, is already inherently glorious. 
Jesus is glorious. He is the Son of God. He is worthy to be praised simply because of of who He is. Remember that on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus ascended up on that mountain with Peter, James, and John, and He pulled back His flesh, and He revealed just a glimpse of His glory, He was showing just a taste of His divinity. He was giving just a sample of the radiance of His glory, showing that He was, in fact, the radiance of the glory of God. Now, it's true that while Jesus was on earth, His glory was largely shielded. It was largely veiled from sinful eyes. But the fact remains, Jesus was and is glorious simply by virtue of who He is. So, here's the point. Jesus is not asking to be made something that He's not. Jesus is asking that his glory, his person, his work, his nature be revealed, be made known, be shown for what it is. Did the Father answer this request? Will Christ be revealed? Will he be shown for who he is? Or perhaps to ask the question a different way, will one day every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Yes. Yes. A thousand times yes. There is much talk today There's much concern today in some circles about being on, quote-unquote, the wrong side of history. The wrong side of history. We hear things like, you must, you must champion this cause or this social issue or this now culturally accepted sin. And if you don't, if you refuse to support this and to condone this and to promote this, then friend, one day you will find yourself on the wrong side of history. Brothers and sisters, do not ever worry about being on the wrong side of history. If you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love Him, if you are committed to representing Him in grace and truth, how can you ever possibly wind up on the wrong side of history when Jesus is Lord and King over eternity? It cannot be done. You need never worry about being on the wrong side of history when all of history will culminate in Christ being glorified. He is King. He is Lord. He is sovereign. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. That He is King. History will take care of itself because Christ is who He is. He is king. He is Lord. Next, note this on your outline. We see that God's glory will be displayed in Christ's authority and life-giving power. God's glory will be displayed in Christ's authority and life-giving power. Here in his prayer, Jesus is abundantly clear that he has authority over all flesh. He, he makes that statement in no uncertain terms. Jesus has authority over all flesh and he is on a life-giving mission. And this will bring glory and praise and honor to God. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, please notice that while Jesus has perfect and complete authority, he uses that authority within the framework of the Father's plan. He uses his authority within the framework of of the Father's will. And the Father has chosen to save. 
The Father has chosen to redeem sinful people like us and the Son uses His authority to accomplish this life-giving rescue mission. The truth that the Father has given Jesus a people to redeem is a point that Jesus comes back to again and again and again throughout this this precious high priestly prayer. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus has authority over all flesh and he uses this authority to impart life, to save and to redeem and call to himself all that the Father has given to him. Now, in your minds, this most likely raises a very obvious question. Well, who are the ones that the Father has given to the sons? Who who is this People, who is this people group that the Father has chosen and, and has given to the Son and that the Son will redeem? Who is this group? Well, the, ac- the answer is actually somewhat simple. Jesus explained this all the way back in John chapter 6, verse 37. In John six thirty-seven, Jesus made this statement, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Everyone who comes to Christ, everyone who believes in Christ, who comes in faith to Christ, comes as a result of them being given as a gift by the Father to the Son. And in this, God is glorified. God is glorified as the Father gives and as the Son redeems and as Jesus calls His bride, His people to Himself, God is glorified. Next, please notice this on your outline. Uh, Jesus defines here now the nature of eternal life as a relationship with God. Jesus defines the nature of eternal life as a relationship with God. Jesus is on a life-giving, God-glorifying mission, and that mission results in sinners knowing God. God in sinners being redeemed and and having been given the gift of eternal life. So how should eternal life be understood? How should we think of this precious gift of eternal life? Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us in verse 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's it. That is the joy and the glory and the majesty of of eternal life. That is what is so amazing, so wonderful, so incredible about eternal life. This is the central core message and meaning of eternal life. And it is not streets of gold. It is not a a mansion in heaven. It is not jewel-encrusted gates. The glory of eternal life is that you get God. You, You get God to know Him, to be in a relationship with Him, to be known by Him in this loving, forever, eternal relationship. You get an intimate, personal relationship with the triune God. You know the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and they know you. They love you. They have set their eternal, unchanging, unbreakable love upon you. This is the glory and the majesty of eternal life. And this is in part why the prophet Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 9, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this. That he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. There is only one thing that is worth boasting about and that is that we know and are known by God. That we have been brought into this glorious, personal, intimate relationship. That we have been loved and redeemed by Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the glorious reality that the Apostle Paul would explain again and again so clearly in Romans chapter 8. As Paul connects this work, this life-giving, glorious work of eternal life. As he connects it to the work of the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the spirit of adoption and how precious that is that that in and of itself that'll preach that'll preach what is the holy spirit who who is his name what can we ascribe to his work he is the spirit of adoption that we may be drawn to christ and adopted into his family for all eternity so paul writes in romans 8:14 for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Eternal life is eternally glorious and eternally beautiful and eternally magnificent and eternally breathtaking because you are eternally with God. Eternally with God. You are made a co-heir with Christ to see Him Forever to behold with perfect eyes and with now a perfect mind his work, his creation, forever enjoying his beauty and his glory. This is the joy of eternal life. And so I beg you today, if you do not know Christ, today can be the day of your salvation. If you do not know Christ, if you have not come to Him, if you have not repented of your sins and turned away from your sins and come to Christ, asking for life and forgiveness in His name because of His work, I plead with you to do it now. Even as we continue on, as I, as I continue to talk, you can and stop listening to me and just pray. And pray to the Father and ask Him to save you, to redeem you, to make you His child now because of what Christ has done for you. Do it today, friend. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of grace. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Come to Christ. Embrace Him today. Next, we need to observe, we should note, please mark this on your outline, that Jesus is so certain of his coming victory that he speaks in the past tense regarding his life and his mission. And by the way, Jesus loved to, uh, to do this. Jesus loved to speak about upcoming future events as if they were already accomplished when he knew they would be accomplished. Look again at verse 4, how Jesus speaks here. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished, past tense, the work you gave me to do. Now, Jesus has certainly accomplished the Father's will to this point. And Jesus knows that he will accomplish the Father's will as he goes to the cross, as he is buried in the tomb, as he rises triumphant from the grave, as he ultimately ascends back into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, as he lives to make intercession for his people. Jesus knows all these things are sure to happen, and so he speaks of them all in 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 the past tense, as if they are 
already accomplished. Jesus loved to do this and the Apostle Paul loved to do this. To speak of our future glorification in the past tense as if it had already happened because Paul was so sure that God would accomplish what he had begun. In Romans 8.30, Paul writes, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, past tense. In Paul's mind, it's a done deal. So certain is he that God will glorify those he justifies. He talks about it in the past tense as if it is already done. Again, you say, what's the point? Here's the point. You should be very confident in Christ and in his saving power. He is the sufficient savior and he saves perfectly and completely all who come to him. May God give us faith. May God give us courage to let our fears and our doubts die before the power and the glory and the radiance of Christ. May we see Him for who He is. May we behold His work rightly to know what He has truly, fully accomplished on our behalf that we may live confident lives. Not confident in ourselves, but confident in Christ. Knowing what He has done for us and what He will do for us in the future. So notice how Jesus prays in verse 5. Verse 5, Jesus says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Please note this on your outline. Jesus prays that he might again manifest and display the full radiance of his divine glory. And please notice that Jesus does not pray for or ask for improved glory. Jesus does not ask for improved glory or new glory, but for a restatement, a returning to display his glory. See, you cannot improve upon perfection. And so Jesus does not pray for a better glory, but for the radiance of his glory to be once again displayed as it was before he humbled himself and came to earth. As God, Jesus already possesses maximum glory. Jesus already possesses eternal glory. And so what he prays for here is expressing his desire to once again display that glory for his radiance and glory to be recognized and seen. The book of Hebrews begins by describing just a little bit Christ's ascension into heaven and the Father's glorifying of His Son in part in answer to this prayer. In Hebrews 1.3 it says of Jesus that He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And then it says this, after making purification for sins, He, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As Christ ascended back into heaven, he was indeed exalted and glorified and once again showed the radiance of the glory of God. So as we consider this prayer, in verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays with confidence for himself, for his glory, And for the Father's glory. And for the accomplishment of His life-giving mission. And this precious truth ought to draw us to Christ. This truth should motivate us to pray and to trust Christ with greater confidence and joy. Now, in in verse 6, and we will just 
begin to transition into this next section as Jesus now begins to pray for for his disciples. I just want to make a few opening comments and this is where we will pick things up next week. Firstly, we need to remember that we have much to learn from these verses. Remember that as Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, we hear his desire, his heart for us as well. What Jesus prays for them is very applicable for us too. And so as we launch out into this section of the prayer next week, we will have much to learn about God's desire, his plan for for us as well. Let me just give you the big picture though of, of a couple verses. In verses 6 to 8, the big picture is this. Truth has been revealed and accepted. Truth has been revealed and accepted. Here Jesus identifies a defining mark of all true believers, of all true disciples of his. They have believed, they have embraced the truth that Christ has revealed. Look again at verses 6 to 8. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me. Here it is. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So in these verses, Jesus identifies just a a couple of, of, of key things. He identifies what he has done, which is to give truth. He identifies what the disciples have done. They have believed, they have embraced the truth that Christ has given. Please note that on your outline, what Jesus has done. He has manifested the Father's name by giving truth. Jesus has revealed and given the Father's words. Here, Jesus says he has manifested the Father's name. He has given them the words that the Father entrusted to him to give to them. In Jesus' life and teaching, in his miracles, in all that he did, he was revealing the Father. He was revealing the Father's name. He was revealing the fact that he is in perfect unity with the Father, manifesting the Father's name and the Father's glory. When Jesus loved his men, he was showing the love of the Father. When Jesus did miracles, he was showing the power of the Father. When Jesus spoke and taught, he was showing the wisdom and the truth of the Father. This is all in fulfillment of what of what John told us about in the first few verses of this book, where in John 1.18 he said of Jesus, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That's what Jesus has done. He has made the Father known, and the disciples have believed that truth. They have received his teaching. So, uh, on your outline, please note what the disciples have done. The disciples believed, received, and embraced the truth. They have kept the Father's word. They have believed that Jesus was indeed sent from the Father. They have received the words of Jesus as the very words of God. And this is so instructive for us. And it teaches us the right posture to take before the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ought to worship him and follow him and embrace all that he says as coming from God, for he is in fact God. In John 17, verse 17, Jesus would speak again of the Father's word, of the truth, when he would pray. And we'll, we'll get more into this next week as Jesus would pray, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be healthy, growing disciples of Christ without loving and embracing his word. Jesus prayed for this. Jesus longed for this. This is one reason why I plead with you to come back next week. Come back next week to hear Jesus' prayer for his disciples, that we may hear as well his heart for us, that we may be well instructed. Your Savior, your great high priest loves you. He has prayed for you. He continues to pray for you. And for this reason, you have every reason to trust Him, to walk with Him, 
to live for him with great joy and confidence. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we delight to consider this morning how you have loved us with an everlasting love. You have truly given us all that we need for life and godliness. Father, help us to further, better, more fully see the glory of Christ and to long for Him. Help us as we leave this place to live joy-filled, confident lives, knowing that we are held safe in Your hand, knowing that our great High Priest lives and that He prays for us. And we offer up this prayer in His good and precious name. Amen.